0: To truly understand the public significance of American evangelicals, we have to understand their entanglements abroad. Their global context is a contention of a new global history of American evangelicals. Welcome to The Square, the podcast of the Project on Religion and its Publics at the University of Virginia. I'm Darren Henry, a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Religious Studies. Our guest today is Professor Melanie McAllister. She is a professor of American Studies and International Affairs at the George Washington University, who specializes in the diverse global visions that are produced by and for Americans in the world. She is the author of Epic Encounter, Culture, Media, and U.S. Interests in the Middle East since 1945, and she also has a post up on our blog about American evangelicals and the alt-right. Her most recent book is the topic of our session today, The Kingdom of God Has No Borders a riveting narrative and a surgically crafted analysis of the complex transnational flows impacting American evangelicals, as well as their partners and antagonists at home and abroad. The book is punctuated by poignant personal stories and delightfully surprising vignettes. Uh, I have to admit that uh, I was uh, surprised to find an extended exegesis uh, of the contemporary Christian music group Kademan's Call (laughs) in an academic history. Uh, So, Professor McAllister, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. So, my first question is twofold, and so you can go with one-fold or the other if you like. Uh, So, just generally, uh, what initially attracted you to this uh, particular topic? And uh, what are some of the primary uh, lessons uh, that we learn about the role of American evangelicals in public life when we shift the focus from the domestic to the global context?
1: That's a great question, and I'll try to answer both parts. Let me begin with what we learn when we have this more international focus away from the traditional histories of American evangelicals, which tend to focus more domestically. What we find when we bring the international picture into the story is that American evangelicals look more multiracial, more complex politically, more ambidextrous, really, that they Mm -hmm. have politics both on the left and the right um, in the international context, and that they have been changed in their perceptions of themselves and the world um, through this sense that they are part of a global Christian community. And this change has sometimes been liberalizing, and sometimes it's actually supported more conservative uh, movements in the church. But in any case... There's been very little of the American church that hasn't been touched in some way by this kind of global facing. So the book begins, well, it actually begins with a debate over civil rights at home domestically, but framing the debate about racism and civil rights in the 1950s and 60s in the context of missionary work, which is how many American evangelicals talked about it. And the first story in the book is actually a story of Sam Oni, um, a Ghanaian a student at Mercer College in, in Macon, Georgia, who is um, the first student to integrate Mercer College. He's brought in because he was converted by missionaries in Ghana. And then he decides to try to integrate a local church. And the story of the opens the book is him trying to go to this local church, which had been debating whether it should be interracial. The pastor wanted it to be, or at least to be open to that, but he had lost the debate. And these deacons, Sam only shows up, and these deacons uh, basically pick him up and kick him down the steps of the front of the church. And so um, that's a story that's familiar to us, but also which we often forget to tell as being the debates about race and racism in the U.S. church were real debates among white evangelicals themselves, who did not all support segregation. And then when they were opposed to segregation, it was often because of missionary work. So anyway, I can go on and on. But the stories that I tell from the uh, decolonization of Congo to the debates over the Iraq War in 2003 to the anti-homosexuality law in Uganda are stories that try to show how international engagements have shaped uh, political debates in the US. And uh, to go to your first question, let me just say that um, this is not the book I expected to write. So when I started, I had written this book about American perceptions of the Middle East, and in that book I had about half a chapter on American evangelicals in Israel, a story by now we're all pretty familiar with. But I, at the time when the book was published, 2001, it hadn't been talked about very much. And I talked about how American evangelicals had been supportive of Israel back in the 70s through the 80s and beyond. And So I expected to write a book about American evangelicals um, fascination with apocalyptic politics. Um, I was writing or thinking about writing at the time that the Left Behind novels were bestsellers. Mm -hmm. And I wrote an article or two about Left Behind. and I thought I would write a book just about that. That that would be a nice short book. Wouldn't take long. And what I found out as I started researching is that evangelicals were involved in all sorts of thinking about global issues that didn't have anything to do with Israel. Israel was important and remains important. Um, and so I started looking at the diversity of um, investments that American evangelicals had in the early 21st century, from Iraq to. Uh, many things going on in Africa, to Sudan, which I talk about at some length. Um, and then, I, being a historian at heart, I realized, oh, there's a history to these things. And so the book ended up being from, you know, 1955 to the present, looking at specifically, mostly the evangelical investments in the Middle East and Africa, though I do talk about other places as well.
0: Yeah, that, That's a fascinating story, discovering uh, a, a really untold dimension to the, to the narrative of American evangelicals. So would you say... What I would take from what you said there, would you say that American evangelicals you think have been challenged in their uh, self-perception and self-understanding by their global encounter?
1: I think it's worked a number of different ways. So the book includes African-American evangelicals as well as white evangelicals. Um, Even though talking about conservative African-American, theologically conservative African-American believers is complicated. They don't always like themselves to be called evangelicals. In fact, they almost never do. But theologically, they share many of the beliefs. Uh, The AME Church and the National Baptist Convention look a lot like the Southern Baptist Convention in terms of theology, although not in terms of politics. And that's, to me, interesting, not Mm -hmm. a reason to exclude them. Um, But the examples I'll give quickly, one is where evangelicals were, in fact, challenged by what was going on is in South Africa. And that's a case where American evangelicals, white and black, had connections in South Africa, and they were pushed to take stronger anti-apartheid stances. Well, especially white evangelicals were pushed to take stronger anti-apartheid stances because um, they were meeting and talking to anti-apartheid black and white evangelicals from South Africa. They were meeting at conferences. Mm -hmm. They were in prayer sessions. They were uh, later, ultimately, connecting, well, through, through um, church meetings and other kinds of things. And then um, this, one of the stories I tell in the book is David Howard, who was head of the World Evangelical Fellowship, goes to do some preaching at a conference in South Africa, as he did all over the world. He'd been a missionary. And he meets and connects with a South African evangelical named Cesar Molabatsi who was um, very anti-apartheid. And David Howard goes and has lunch with Cesar Moulabatse at his home, which was in Soweto. This is 1985. And uh, Molabatsi had co- been in the U.S., had gone to Wheaton College, had come back. And while they're sitting around talking, the South African Defense Forces come in and arrest them all. And I don't know, but I'm pretty sure this was the only time David Howard got arrested in his life. <laughs> <laughs> and he was shocked by it. And it changed him. And he came back and started talking about apartheid in a way that he had not and saying that American white American evangelicals needed to think about it more. The story of African American evangelicals is a different one because the AME Church, for example, had churches in South Africa. And there was actually a complicated... dynamic by which it was actually harder for the AME Church to take an official position against apartheid, although where they were very much against it, um, because it might affect their bishops and their churches in South Africa. So um, those transnational connections can work to work a range of ways. And let me just mention one other quick example, which is in Uganda where the connection with Ugandan evangelicals, which was quite real. Rick Warren had a lot of connections in Uganda and a number of other Americans did. And when the Ugandan moved to pass the anti-homosexuality law that was passed in 2009 and then went back and forth and was retracted and then put back in in a less draconian fashion, the original law called for the death penalty for what they described as aggravated homosexuality. Um, Rick Warren had connections in Uganda, and that actually made it harder for him to take a strong stance against the law. He ultimately did, but it took him quite a few months when the law was being proposed and debated, and he understood that when he did take this stance, he would get criticized by Ugandans, which he did, for being a colonialist. They're like, we can do theology ourselves, thank you, we don't need your help, we appreciate your books and we bought them and thank you, but no, we don't want your opinion, and so that story of how the transnational connection actually has supported the most conservative arguments about um, homosexuality in the US, and it's been difficult for people who are you know, moderately conservative, who may, as, as Warren did, have uh, positions against, uh, say, LBGTQ marriage, but who did not believe that gay people should be killed, um, that pus- puts them in a very complicated position.
0: I think both those examples, the Ugandan case and the South African case, highlight the, the real significance of your first analytical framework, that of networks, and how significant that is for the evangelical story. And that would go back prior to uh, antecedent to your history, uh, all the way back to the Great Awakenings, but how significant those global networks were for shaping evangelicals and uh, I thought an indelible phrase was uh, on page 69 n- describing evangelicals as networks in motion was uh, I thought Thank you. It's a great phrase.. Yeah.
1: <laughs> can I just mention the different frameworks then?
0: Could uh, we return that? to the yes, third we? one at the end? Okay sure. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what I did want to get to first before that was the uh, two concepts by which you characterize the posture of American evangelicals towards the world. One you call enchanted internationalism, uh, and the other one you call a victim identification. Could you elaborate on those for us?
1: Yes. Um, these two modalities, really, for interacting with the rest of the world shaped American evangelical life probably before my period, but from the beginning of my period to the end in different ways. Um, I start in 1955 and end in about 2015, Enchanted internationalism is a form of engagement that many American evangelicals use at different points of seeing the rest of the world, especially the global south, as perhaps idealized as more religiously engaged, more emotional, more passionate about their faith, and therefore um, some not just to be missionized to, that was the old model, but instead also to be seen as ideal uh, embodiments of a kind of passionate faith that many American evangelicals will talk about as something that they need more of in their own faith there's a sense especially among you know non-pentecostal American evangelicals that uh, the faith may be too dry too rationalistic and that was certainly one of the reasons why you see the kind of um, charismatic push in a lot of evangelical churches that in the 70s and 80s did not have their hands up in the air when the uh, prayers were happening or when the songs were happening, but now do. There's a lot of reasons for that, but one of them is this sense that there is a global faith that is more passionate that is more like that. Mm -hmm. And this is, I think, often the source of a lot of genuine connection and longing for connection on the part of Americans, but it also has a kind of romantic primitivism aspect as well or a kind of orientalism where um, other people are there as a resource for providing passion that you think you want and so it has a dual edge really um, almost at every point where people are both genuinely reaching out in brotherhood and at the same time there can be this condescension or expectation of other people being a resource for you so that's one The second, victim identification, emerges out of that sometimes, but really also has two components. That is, as American evangelicals have become more globally aware, they are more able to understand the realities of life where people may suffer from poverty or health crises or war in ways that many American evangelicals have no experience with. they begin to learn more about the victimization of people in other parts of the world, or the suffering of people in other parts of the world, and to identify with that. And that identification can lead to giving money, it can lead to fighting apartheid, it can lead to trying to do all sorts of things um, in humanitarian or political veins that American evangelicals um, may not always have been comfortable with, but are doing more and more. But there's another kind of piece of victim identification, which is that as Americans have identified more with Christians in the Global South, after the end of the Cold War, after 1989, they begin to see people in the Global South as victims not of communism necessarily or of racial oppression, but as victims of Muslims. And Muslims begin to be identified as the primary victimizers of people, especially in Africa and the Middle East, where I I focus most of my work. And so Americans begin to talk more and more about the dangers, and and Europeans too, actually, about the dangers coming from Islam. And they did that in part because they saw other Christians whom they identified with as victims and um, didn't always understand the conflicts in the complexity that those conflicts actually are. So I talk a lot about Sudan. You could also talk about Nigeria. You could talk about other places where American onlookers want to see this as a Muslim-Christian conflict, like in North and South Sudan, which in fact was a much more complicated conflict that had to do with access to resources and ethnicity and other kinds of historical tensions. So they misunderstand conflicts and misrecognize them. But it also has, in that context, led to or um, played a major role in the intense anti-Muslim sentiment that animates American evangelical life. And so... Victim identification, identifying with victims, can also mean, in the case of um, Islam, Americans continuing to identify themselves as victims because they are Christians too, after all. And all the anti-Muslim sentiment in American life more broadly only encourages this. So that there's a statistic that I talk about at the end of the book about um, American evangelicals were asked in 2017 whether they think Christians are the victim of a lot of discrimination in the United States, and 55% said yes. And then they were asked, are Muslims victims of a lot of discrimination in the United States? And 44% said yes. So more people believe that Christians are discriminated against in the U.S. than believe Muslims are. And this seems impossible. How could anybody think this? But it makes more sense, not that I agree with it, but it makes more sense when you see that 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 sense of victimization has happened in part through this global
0: context. So the the uh, self-perception of persecution has been brought back from overseas vis-a-vis a kind of totalizing view of Islam as the perpetrators of this um, victimization or persecution.
1: Yes, thank you. That's a very yeah. nice summary of it. And now my friend and colleague Marie Griffith and I did an event last night and I made this argument and she said, Okay, sure, but Americans have seen themselves, American evangelicals have seen themselves as victims of a lot of other things too feminism, secularism, hum, uh, liberals. Going you back
0: know. to the whole fundamentalist, modernist. Yeah, even split way when, back. When and when all evangelicals are to see themselves as a beleaguered minority or a faithful remnant.
1: Exactly. Uh, and then, so this has a longer history than the uh, post 1989 focus on Islam, and I think that's absolutely right as well. But you can see this sense of. Um, particular discrimination vis-a-vis Muslims as having this global context.
0: Yeah, especially in our contemporary context. And I think that relates really well to your chapter on the 1040 window. Uh, So in in terms of evangelicals kind of mapping, imaginatively mapping the world in terms of evangelism and missions, Uh, would you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yes, thank you. Uh, I was fascinated when I found out about the 1040 window. It's the kind of thing you you kind of can't make up because it's a map of the world between 10 and 40 degrees um, latitude that is uh, saying in this window, which encompasses South Asia, the Middle East, and uh, other parts of uh, a pretty narrow band, that window is a place where Islam, Hinduism and Buddhism are the predominant religions. And in 1989, Louis Bush stood up before the second Lausanne meeting, which was in Manila, but um, was a follow on to the 74 Lausanne meeting. And he stood up and said, this is a place where we need to focus all of our missionary work. You know, the millennium is coming. This is the place where people are enslaved, in his language, by Hinduism, Buddhism or Islam, but especially Islam. And that is the focus of our missionary work, and it's the focus of our anxiety as well. Like, people have to be worried about what is happening to people there and how they are trying to reach out and uh, also missionize to other parts of the world. And that focus on the 1040 window, which happened to be announced in 1989, um, is a kind of perfect map for the post-Cold War world right. and evangelical um, geogra- moral geographies. Moral geography is a concept that... Um, political scientist Michael Shapiro introduced, and I find really useful, people mapping the world in ways that shape who's our allies and who's our enemies. And the Cold War map for evangelicals and many other people was one way of thinking about it. When the Cold War is about to end and people recognize that, they come up with other ones, and the, the 1040 window is one of them. And that, of course, leads to a focus on Islam both as a site for missionary activity, but also as a competitor and a source of anxiety.
0: Yeah, that's uh, striking, the coincidental timing there with with that emerging. Uh, You mentioned the Lausanne uh, Congresses, and I I thought that one of the key inflection points of the book was Chapter 5 on the first uh, Lausanne uh, Congress on World Evangelization in 1974. Why was that such a crucial moment for this Uh, global engagement of American evangelicals.
1: Yes, Lausanne really is a key point in the book, and it wasn't one that I went in expecting to be so central. I'd known about it, but I didn't realize how much it would be a pivot point for the history I wanted to tell, because in the late 60s and early 1970s, with the increasing visibility of people from the Global South, Latin America, Asia, Africa, and elsewhere, and the Latin Americans are key to the story of Lausanne, it seemed as if for a while it really did seem as if American evangelicalism might be a moderately liberal force in the world because you go to 1970 InterVarsity, Urbana. Urbana, 70, and and you
0: hear Tom Skinner... uh,
1: Tom Skinner talking about racism but Samuel Escobar, the Latin American theologian, standing up and saying to these college students "Um, you all need to be reading Marx and Marcuse now they understand more about the social injustices in our world than most pastors do now they don't know that that's about sin, and we do, but they understand the injustice and you need to be reading them, and I just think I see this when I'm re- doing the research and I think, when has anybody ever talked about Marx and Marcuse in an evangelical conference? Uh, <laughs> you know, it seems unlikely, but this is not unusual. And so and then in 1974, this is a big global conference and there are a lot of quite conservative American and European evangelicals there, people who want to focus either politically conservative or just want to focus on converting people and don't want to be in Individual evangelism, ev- not yes.
0: social cl- questions
1: right, let's bring people to Jesus and save them from eternal damnation. And that's what we need to focus on. But these Latin Americans are there along with a bunch of uh, African Americans and others from the U.S. John Stott, who is an Anglican from England, but who is also pretty supportive of this. They're saying we need to focus evangelism also on what they call social concern, what we would call social justice. We need to be talking about materialism, racism, oppressions, and those are sins as much as these individual sins that Americans like to talk about. And there was a lot of anti-Americanism at that conference. Uh, uh, (laughs) Rene Padilla talks about the American way of counting converts as a
0: kind of... um, The church growth model.
1: Yeah, and he was furious about it. And they came out of Lausanne. They really did. The the Latin Americans and the others who had this um, radical discipleship uh, network at Lausanne, they come out thinking they'd won.
0: They Is that come a theoric victory?
1: Yeah, it was. It might have been. It certainly was short-lived. And in fact, they hadn't won. It's 1974. They come out thinking, yes, you know, Ron Siders. Rich, rich Christians in an Age of Hunger is coming out. Mm-hmm. People are thinking about this stuff. There's all sorts of meetings, and they say, yeah, this, this model of social concern is going to be what evangelicalism looks like over the next 20 or 30 years. And, uh, you know, five years later, four years later, the moral majority is founded. Mm-hmm. And Ron Sider, who wrote Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, I interviewed him, and I, he said, you know, we were at Lausanne, We talked about social concern and not just a focus on counting converts. And some people heard us. They weren't at Lausanne. Jerry Falwell wasn't at Lausanne. Pat Robertson wasn't at Lausanne. They were not invited. But they are the ones who heard us. They had social concerns. They were just very different concerns.
0: That cuts both ways. Yeah. Depends on what your uh, view of the social is and your concerns are.
1: Yes. And Francis Schaeffer, who was at Lausanne and who was in favor of social concern, comes back and becomes, in the book I quote Der Spiegel, which called him the philosopher of the moral majority, and Francis Schaeffer comes back and he starts, he does whatever happened to the human race, he starts um, advocating against abortion, and the thing is, if you go back and read those books and watch that video, he does it in terms that use the language of social concern literally, that say the problem is that these are oppressed people, these fetuses. They need to be treated um, in the way that we need to save oppressed people. And the problem is that women and other people are so materialistic and focused on themselves, they don't care about others. And that language of abortion as a politics of social concern is the remarkable um, migration of the language from Lausanne into the, the strange the Christian heritage right.
0: of Lausanne. Although that uh, the more progressive social concern, evangelicalism did not die out, right? No, it's Still, important to say. But but, can uh, considerable minority. Yeah. yeah. Who were some of the unforgettable characters of your study, either positively or negatively?
1: <laughs> well, I would say that the person who most influenced the book is someone who opens the book and who is in it later, a guy named uh, Dick Robinson, who's a pastor. Um, He's a missionary now, but at the time he was uh, one of the lead pastors at a megachurch outside of Milwaukee. And I met Dick at a conference that I went to when I was first starting to do research on the book in 2006, and he was a keynote speaker at a conference on missionary work. And he gave this kind of crazy talk about how postmodern evangelicalism would be at a church in Nairobi with people from China worshiping while they were their prayers were being translated into Mandarin. And everybody's going to be... This was his vision, not this an actual church. This is his vision. Church, no, he's his vision, just imagining... Vision for the church. Okay. Yeah, this global church the where global church. Uh, everybody is uh, international. Revelation 7
0: type actualization.
1: Yeah, yeah. Just sort of like, this is the kind of world I want to live in. And I thought this was wild, so I said to him, um, "You know, I'd like to interview you sometime. I could come to Wisconsin because this conference was at Wheaton." And he got back on his Harley Davidson and was driving back to Wheaton. <laughs> he looked like Jerry Garcia at the time, too. He really did. Um,
0: I love that detail.
1: <laughs> he, <laughs> so he goes back to Wheaton, and I email him, and he says, "Okay, you can come. You know, interview me anytime. I've got nothing to hide. Just." don't come in the first week in December because I'm going to South Sudan. I've met this man for 10 minutes, and I wrote him back, can I come? And he said, sure, you can come. And so I did. And that trip to South Sudan with with a short-term missions team from the church was a remarkable trip for many reasons, but it pushed me really quickly into having to understand the subtlety and complexity of how evangelicals were engaging um, issues in the Global South in ways that I wasn't necessarily bringing into my research. I just didn't know enough about the multiplicity of investments and concerns and long-term relationships and short-term relationships. And as you know from the book, I'm very critical of short-term missions, as many Mm -hmm. evangelicals are themselves. And I was very critical of how the politics around Sudan and how American evangelicals engaged with South Sudan in general. But in this experience, I also saw people who had a deep and long-term commitment to the group of people they were working with who were committing financial resources, but who were trying very hard and often succeeding at not being, you know, neo-colonial Americans in this context. And that experience really did shape the framework that I brought to the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. And, and Dick was also a missionary kid in Congo, so he told me a lot of stories about his childhood in Congo. So I learned a lot of things from him, and, um, and from that just shaped how I approached the rest of the research I did.
0: Yeah, it gave you new perspective on that, your own research. So I did want to return to our analytical frameworks after our characters. Uh, so we talked a little bit about networks and uh, bodies was also very significant, uh, both in terms of individual bodies who had been scarred in some of these global uh, encounters uh, and in terms of the uh, internal theological discourse of the church as the body, the global church as the body of Christ. Uh, There was also, the one that particularly drew my attention I think was the emotions. And uh, I I thought, for one, that these were actually quite well integrated in each section so that you could see uh, the relationship between bodies and networks and emotions. Uh, But emotions particularly stood out for me, both because of its uh, characterization of evangelical spirituality itself. Uh, I remember the quip of the the great Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan, who called evangelicalism the affectional transposition of Christian doctrine. Um, but also because of the recent trend uh, to take emotions more seriously in in our public life and in our reasoning. I'm thinking of Martha Nussbaum's political emotions especially. Uh, so how do these global engagements kind of foreground the role of the emotions, and uh, are there any uh, dangers if we do so uh, about in terms of criteria for evaluating or challenging our emotions? And... I was particularly interested if you would give us a little more, this didn't make it into the narrative, of how you thought this challenged the rational actor theory uh, that kind of predominates in international relations in terms of a deculturalized uh, and uh, a-emotional rationality that is supposed to govern our kind of global public decisions.
1: Yes, thank you. Those are great questions. And I'll start with the fact that I was a little wary of using emotions explicitly as a framework because I understand that many people who look at evangelicals from the outside, and I am looking from the outside too, but many um, scholars and historians and other observers want to believe that evangelicals are particularly irrational, particularly emotional, particularly driven by their hatreds and other forms of passion, Mm And Whereas there's actual
0: a tradition of significant rationality um, yes. among evangelicals.
1: Exactly. I mean uh, Molly Worthen's whole book right, about evangelical of crisis of authority. Yeah. Yes, evangelical yeah. rationality. Yeah. Um, so I wanted, I didn't want to play into that perception or that image. But at the same time, it seems clear. And I didn't want to even about religious people in general. Religious people are very emotional and secular people are very rational. And, you know, all of that is just wrong. So I didn't want to play into it. But it seems to me that because of my commitment in general to challenging rational actor theory as a way of understanding anybody's politics, um, and that is to say, When we talk about rational actor theory, it's a notion about how... First, it's always focused on policymakers, as if policymakers are rational in ways that other people are not, um, which I don't... Or don't
0: emerge from constituencies.
1: Or don't (laughs) emerge from life experience and narratives and historical contextualizations, all of which are shaped by emotions. And so I wanted to... And I also believe that they have constituencies and that all of us have rationality and use it, and our notions of what is rational, what is common sense, what makes sense, are shaped in historical ways that are framed by affective and um, irrational senses of what the world is and how it works. Um, And no one escapes that. Um, So because I believe that is true, it seemed to me absolutely right to look at the emotional experiences of evangelicals as part and parcel of their politics in the same way I would with anybody else. And so evangelicals are great in the sense that they also will claim their emotionality in ways that some other people might try to hide it uh, in the sense of the emotional experience of being in church or the emotional experience of music or the experience of having passion and love are on the sleeve, so to speak. Um, But I think that those are true for a lot of us, that how we See, for example, in my in my first book, I talk about American perceptions of the Middle East, and I talk a lot about, you know, news media and how they represent different issues. And I talk, for example, about the Iran hostage crisis and how that was represented on American television for 444 days um, as a crisis of masculinity, as a crisis of um, mm-hmm. great emotional significance, mm-hmm. as a, a wound in the body of America. You know, all of those things. And that those shaped how people understood what was reasonable to do in Iran, why we were there, what politics should be engaged afterwards. So I'm trying to bring some of that same perspective to evangelicals. And so um, when I look, for example, and I I do care about media in general, and I had a lot of fun with Cademan's Call and the the, uh, short-term missions chapter. But thinking about that was thinking about how notions of what Uh, evangelicals owe to other people or how they should be engaged or what counts as um, doing good in the world is shaped by something as simple as music and that um, I would say that music plays a major role in shaping evangelical uh, experience both domestically and internationally and it's something people often don't talk about.
0: Absolutely. Do you have a favorite contemporary Christian band now?
1: You know, every time I mention a contemporary Christian band, they break up. So <laughs> I have to be very careful. Jars of Clay is gone now. I had a whole bunch of stuff on them. Um, but I did like Caveman's Call, I have to say. I think they're, I mean, they're probably appropriate to someone my age. You know, they're folk rock, they're <laughs> soft, they're sincere. Um, but I i don't have much time for a Reliant K. That's not, those Boy, are not, you K, know. Yeah. But Lecrae is interesting, you know. I
0: like. I like to see that in there, yeah. Especially yeah. given his uh, own controversies around the 2016 election, right, yeah. and his, his own attachment to the to the evangelical label. Yeah, yeah. And DC Talk was in there, so that that was fantastic.
1: And also broken up. I mean, you know.
0: <laughs> so if you write about them, they will break up. Yeah, I think that might be true. Yes. Well, Professor McAllister, thank you so much for your time. This has been a fascinating uh, glance uh, into the the world of global evangelicalism and uh, the entanglements of American evangelicals abroad. Thank you. Thank you. This has been another edition of The Square, a podcast of the religion and its publics at the University of Virginia. Thank you for listening.